0: The next chapter with Prem Seripipat is a production of iHeartRadio. Hey, everybody, it's Prem. Welcome to the next chapter presented by Baron Davis and Slick Studios. This week, we continue the Transparent Conversation Series, a nationwide multi city, multi university tour addressing student athlete mental health and well being. Such an important topic. Where I, the host and advisor, is helping to lead these conversations with different panelists and different topics in different locations. And it's all being powered by LG Electronics USA. So we began this series talking about the stressors of the modern student athlete experience. And this week, we're talking about the consequences of those stressors, including the mental health implications. So this is part two with Anna Callahan, a current Duke women's lacrosse player, Kat Pollage, a former member of the Duke women's lacrosse team, and Ethan Phillips, student at UNC, also the vice president For health and wellness on the UNC System Association of Student Government's executive board now in this episode we do discuss some sensitive topics and issues including suicidality which could trigger anyone listening to this conversation so I wanted to include an important disclaimer and trigger warning so if you or someone else you know is in need of help are having disturbing thoughts or having thoughts of hurting or harming others or are having suicidal thoughts you can call 988, which is the new three-digit dialing code that will route callers to the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline. That's 988. And they will be able to help you and also direct you to other resources, including a mental health counselor. So here is part two of the LG Transparent Conversations with Anna, Kat, and Ethan over on East Campus at Duke University in Durham, North Carolina. door is closed. We're locked. You guys cannot run or walk away. (laughs) There's no turning back now. There is no turning back. How many freshmen do you think are hearing this maybe and they're still sleeping from last night's Halloween extravaganza? Because Anna is here and she's had about 10 cough drops to get your voice all ready to go. How many how many freshmen are we waking up right now? Definitely the masses. They're all
1: (laughs) being woken up right now. It's going to be amazing.
0: All right. Well, welcome, everybody, to LG Transparent Conversations, our nationwide multi-city, multi-university tour in mini-series addressing student-athlete mental health and well-being. And it's all being powered by LG Electronics USA. So my name is Prim Saripipat. I will be your host and moderator for today's amazing event and discussion. For those that don't know me, just for a little context, I was a member of the Duke women's tennis team from 99 to 2003. Yes, I'm dating myself. Um, (laughs) It was a long time ago, but during that period, uh, we did clinch the program's first ever national title. And afterwards, thank you, thank you, thank you, Cat and everybody else. And afterwards, I went into sports broadcasting, but after about 18 years or so, I have... Begun to make the transition towards the mental health space. So, today I'm a PhD student in the counseling psychology program at Fordham University, and my whole goal and much of my research focuses on helping the athlete population and everybody who is in and around sports. So, today marks the second of many episodes of these LG Transparent Conversations. And each panel discussion is going to address different topics. So yesterday, we talked about stressors of the modern student-athlete experience. And today, we're going to touch on the consequences of those student-athlete stressors. Okay, joining us for this very important, important conversation today, we have Anna Callahan, Duke women's lacrosse player and founding member of the ambassador program of Morgan's Message. An initiative aimed at eliminating the stigma surrounding mental health, especially within the student athlete community. Anna, we've had some conversations before. It's it's so nice to finally see you in person. I know you've had you know some cough drops, so hopefully your <laughs> voice is ready to go. Yeah, no, my voice
1: is definitely ready to go. I promise my voice normally sounds like this, but <laughs> a little bit <laughs> here. But no, I'm so excited to be here. Thank you so much uh, for having me on. It's going to be an awesome experience, and I can't wait to hear all the questions and have such an awesome conversation with all these people in this room.
0: Super stoked to have you here. And now we have uh, Kat Zimpalik, a former Duke women's lacrosse player who graduated in 2018, also the co-founder and director of podcasting for Morgan's Message. And Kat, it's so great to have you here. And last but certainly not least, we have Ethan Phillips. He is a senior at UNC, the vice president for health and wellness on the UNC System Association of Student Government executive board and he's worked in the field of community-based mental health advocacy for many years and of course for those that cannot see us and they are listening to us, we are here on the East Campus side of Duke University. So one might be wondering, why in the world do we have a Tar Heel joining this conversation? <laughs> but the whole, it, it's less about where we are and about more about what we are doing. And obviously when we're talking about mental health, there are no rivalries, there are no enemies, right? This is all about being inclusive. And Ethan, we want to welcome you and thank you for coming in and joining us.
2: Thanks so much, Prem. It's, it's great to be here, even on Blue Devils campus. <laughs> um, and really grateful for this opportunity and, and the conversation that we're going to have.
0: I see you wearing two different shades of blue. So I can recognize that you probably were a little conflicted over what you wanted to do, if you really wanted to represent the Tar Heels or not.
2: I still have my Carolina blue on. And uh, (laughs) yeah, I don't own a lot of royal blue, so. (laughs)
0: Mm. All right, fantastic. All right, so the goal for today, the topic today, is obviously talking about the consequences and effects of these stressors. And these stressors, obviously, can have a wide range of effects, including, um, you know, just general mental health consequences and implications. So before we move forward with today's conversation, I think it's really important, right, that we put a disclaimer on today's conversation because we are going to be talking about some sensitive topics as it relates to mental health, including suicide, which could trigger anyone listening to this conversation. So if you or someone you know is in need of help or having thoughts of hurting or harming themselves or are having suicidal thoughts, you can also, uh, you can call not 988 which is the new 3 digit dialing code that will route callers to the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline. For student athletes here uh, on Duke's campus you can reach out to Dr. Sean Zeppelin and others in the Behavioral Health Group within the Duke Athletic Staff and of course there's also CAPS Duke's Counseling and Psychological Services uh, which is 919-660-1000 which is located on the 3rd floor of the Student Wellness Center on West Campus next to Penn Pavilion. So if If you have any questions, concerns, you feel like you need some help or you feel like you know somebody that needs help, right? We want you to get those resources. And uh, just also another disclaimer, for myself, we're gonna be talking about a lot of mental health issues. I think sometimes people look at me and they think, oh, because Prim has been in this space, she's a psychologist. I am not a psychologist yet, I have two or three more years, so I'm a third year. So everything that I'm speaking about today is more anecdotal and coming from my own experience and the things that I've learned. But again, if you need help, you know, you, need, you have somebody that needs help, reach out to the appropriate sources and, and find a mental health uh, clinician. Okay, I'm tired of talking, it's time to bring you guys in. <laughs> Continuing the conversation from yesterday, when you think about the stressors, of the student athlete experience, or even just being a general student? What comes to mind?
1: Anna? Yeah, I would say uh, the expectations surrounding perfection, especially at Duke. um, There is this major, major stigma around Duke students, Duke athletes, to be perfect. Um, And I think that's the biggest thing that I've struggled with over my time at Duke. I know a lot of other student athletes and regular students here on campus struggle with that same thing, the thought that you have to be put together all the time. Doing everything under the sun to be a successful person. Sometimes being a successful person is, you know, just taking care of yourself and doing the things that you really value as a person. Um, so I think that's something that's really important to note. Those expectations can be really, really hard on people on Duke Duke's campus specifically.
0: Yeah, yeah, I can definitely relate to that. Kat, do you feel uh, do you feel that same pressure?
3: Maybe. Yeah, and I think I think when you boil it down to, there's different pockets of expectations you place on yourself. So not only like from the student athlete perspective, it's excelling within athletics, it's excelling in the classroom, it's having a bunch of friends in a community, it's being involved outside of your sport and your academics because like for, for us female student athletes, there isn't most of the time like life after co- collegiate sports. Yeah. And so it's like, how are you building your resume now to, there's just so many stressors um, and I think it, it comes down to the expectations that we feel are being placed on us from either our parents or society and then we place them on ourselves and then we feel like we can't hit them or if we're hitting two out of the three, it's still not enough. It's almost like it's never yeah. enough.
0: That's such a good point. I mean, you're right. I think for females, I, I think the, the path towards pro-level sports has changed and has gotten better for the better for women. But still, I think there is kind of this thought in the back of your mind, like, well, it, it's a tough path. You know, I think most likely after college I'm going to retire. So in some ways, that's interesting that you say that. It's so true. I felt that. So do you feel like there's, like, you're, you're on a clock almost? Like, once you get here, it's like time's running out. I got to kind of shift through.
3: Yeah, I think you hit hit junior year, and a lot of people are looking at, like, s- s- junior some are going to senior year internships, and it's like, that's the next thing that you have to hit, and Mm -hmm. if you don't hit that, then it's like, what am I doing senior year, and you kind of feel like you're on a lifeboat, where it's the last year of freedom, until real world hits, and it's even more expectations are are piled on, it's no longer, I feel like, excelling at school, because classes, at least in my experience, were easier my senior year, because I'd gotten all my normal recs out, but then it was like, Oh God, what am I doing next? Like I, everyone's getting jobs in finance and consulting and I don't know what I want to do. And they all seem like they have it figured out. And we weren't having, at least within like my grade, weren't having these conversations about like how scared we were for the next step and like how the unknown was affecting us mentally.
0: Mhm. And and you are now 4 years removed from graduating from Duke. 3 or 4 years at this point. So at least you just have a little bit of context. You can look reflect back on your experience and maybe some of these things will come to fruition for you. And Ethan, you're a senior, so I would imagine as an upperclassman you're kind of going through that that thought process of like, okay, what am I going to do next? And so Anna and Kat kind of talked about this perfectionism, this this expectation and level of pressure. Do you feel that that same energy sometimes over at Chapel Hill.
2: Absolutely, I think that's uh, almost universal to the college experience. That there will be um, these outside pressures, whether you feel like you have to put them on yourself, or you see your friends excelling at such a high level um, to want to succeed beyond college, and and get worried about um, what comes next. You know, for most college students' lives leading up to this point, um, everything was about getting into college, um, and uh, what is that going to look like? Where am I going to go? Um, am I going to find the right people and, and connect um, in the way that I want to on my campus? And then suddenly it, it broadens up very quickly of where am I going from here? And then add on top of that for student athletes also having to um, keep up with the, the high level of, of expectations in the locker room and and on the field. um, And I think it can very easily boil over and and, uh, produce burnout.
0: What is the conversation among your peers about how these stressors are affecting everybody? And you can even speak from your own experience because that's the topic of the conversation right today is okay, now we're beginning to identify some of these pressures. And all of you really just talked about just the general expectation and pressure, which is funny because it's not like something that you can You can feel or you can feel it, but you can't touch it. You can't measure it. Right. And so it's this general kind of cloud that's hovering over us. So how do all of these things affect student athletes and also students?
1: Yeah, no, I would say those expectations can be really hard on people. But again, it's that everyone walks around pretending that they have everything put together. And I think it was a lot worse, maybe when I was like a junior or a sophomore. Um, but now that I'm a grad student, I go to Fuqua. It's very interesting because everyone right now is looking for jobs and you have people graduating or talking about maybe getting their MBA, doing all these different things. So. I think it's really difficult, but people are a lot more open about being like, I'm really stressed out. Like, mm-hmm. honestly, like, everyone's talking about jobs. I don't know what I want to do. Like, when you go to Fuqua, it's like this pipeline from the MMS certificate to consulting. Like, everyone goes to consulting or finance. I don't really want to do consulting or finance. So it's it's been this very interesting battle of listening to people talk about these jobs and these internships. But a lot of people are very much pretty open with these stressors and listening to my uh, friends that are underclassmen on the team too. Some juniors are talking about those um, internships that Kat was mentioning and that's very stressful for them and they openly talk about how stressed they are. And that's new. I didn't Mm -hmm. see that before um, maybe a couple years ago. And I think this conversation around mental health and it's okay to not have everything put together from all these conversations about mental health has really benefited individuals especially at Duke maybe to people you don't know you're not as like open about maybe your struggles but i think it's very interesting because my close friends are more open to talking about these things now and i feel like i've benefited a lot from that as well so i think that's been awesome
0: yeah there's certainly a benefit and advantage and it brings people together when you're just more vulnerable and you're like like listen this is this is really rough so I'm curious, do you think that's a thing that changes as you become an upperclassman where people are just more comfortable in their skin? Or do you think it has to do with maybe what's going on with people having conversations? And Kat and Ethan, you can chime in here.
3: I I think as you get older and you get more comfortable, you're then able to kind of stand firmly in like what you want, what you believe and who you are. And in my experience, being on a team, like the upperclassmen kind of set the tone for like how, what's being talked about, how it's being talked about, right? Like coming in wide-eyed, bushy tail freshman who's like puts girls on a pedestal and you're kind of like, I want to be like that when I'm a senior. You really value what they say. So it's a trickle-down effect, I think, and in my experience it was, of having those types of conversations. And like to Anna's point, they weren't being had openly I would say they were being had in in not a bad way but like corners of the room right between like two or three people you felt like someone understood what you were going through you could go to them you could talk about it but it wasn't something that you wanted to share with 40 other girls like that felt really scary that felt like you know you could be judged and I also think another thing especially going to Duke a lot of times I felt like because my stress manifested in a lot of anxiety and I also struggled with depression and it felt like I have everything right like on paper I'm a student athlete at Duke University I you know play women's lacrosse something that only 30 to 40 girls a year can say that they're playing and like we have probably what like 150 maybe like girls through the program whatever but right like you feel like on paper you have all this stuff like why why do I feel this way? It's not fair when other people are struggling with things that are way worse. And that, I think, forces you to kind of lock it inside a little bit more because you feel like it's unjustifiable, like as yeah. a young kid with really, I feel like the lack of, yeah, I think it's it's part of that too.
0: Yeah, I think that makes a lot of sense. And thank you so much for sharing that and being so open about your own struggles and the internal processes. And I think that... It does. It kind of happens. I think that happens a lot to to uh, not only just a lot of student athletes, but it happens mm-hmm. to people in general, right? It's happened to me where it's like, well, I I certainly come from a place of privilege and I have all these resources and finances. So why am I struggling? And for me, I've been pretty public about it. But when I was here, certainly kind of symptoms of depression or, or just dealing, uh, being certainly anxious, but I developed um, really an eating disorder when I was... 17 or 18 years old right as I was being recruited uh, for all the universities I went through this um I suffered two stress fractures in my back so it was a really critical period because I was like oh my gosh I'm not going to get recruited if people find out about my injury and all this other stuff and so that became kind of like my coping mechanism and then as I went to college it kind of fluctuated but then that becomes like your your safety nets, like, okay, this is my way of coping. And so much of eating disorders or disordered eating behaviors is kind of like locking in and not wanting to share any of your struggles inside. Um, So thank you for for sharing that. And Ethan, when we're talking about all of these things, um, any thoughts come to mind in terms of, obviously the stress and expectations, it's different for everybody But then the output and how we're opening up and sharing it with others is seems to be um more difficult in terms of it coming out
2: yeah absolutely i mean asking for help is so important but it's also the hardest part um for anyone but especially students who feel like they have to have everything put together and put on that persona of of perfection um i think I like Anna's point that this is becoming a little bit more common. Um, I think for upperclassmen especially, you know, there's more of a developed uh, support structure, um, whether it's your teammates or friends that you may have had for two or three years now. Um, these are people that you feel a little bit more comfortable going to and opening up with. Um, so it can be very, very hard for first and second year students to have that same kind of support structure, especially student athletes that may not be coming to school to college with um, many friends from from high school. Um, They may be coming as the only student from their high school and and maybe from their entire um, area. So I think coming in as a first year with zero support structure um, is is such a hard reality for for so many students and so many student athletes. Um, Beyond moving through college and becoming more comfortable with your friends and support structures, I think also the the pandemic has really impacted people's willingness to be open about our experiences and feelings and emotions. Um, the pandemic has affected everyone and we all knew just how hard it was to go through um, months of, of isolation away from our friends away from our campuses. Um, so. People were a little bit more willing, at least I saw, and in, in my experience, coming back to campus to talk about how hard that was, mm-hmm. um, and maybe the the feelings that we went through during that time, and and still now that the pandemic continues to affect students in a lot of ways, um, and asking for a little bit more grace and flexibility, uh, while also being a little more willing to to talk about it,
0: and you know, when we were all talking beforehand, just kind of during our pre-production meeting, I know you had mentioned, hey, is it okay if we talk about the pandemic? I'm like, absolutely, nothing is off the table. And if you think that's something that's really important, and it is, because I think in our heads, it's like, okay, well, COVID's floating around and we just have to figure out a way to navigate this. You wear a mask, you don't wear a mask, you get vaxxed, you don't get vaxxed. I mean, it's just like this crazy slew of things. And But you're right, I think that universities and athletes and students and just people, families, me as a mom and a wife, I'm like still trying to figure it out. I mean, it was so hard. So when we're talking about the pandemic and how it affected just general mental health for students and student athletes, what comes to mind for you both, Anna and Kat?
1: Yeah, I mean, what comes to mind for me is I think it gave a lot of people, and I know we talked about this before in the pre-production meeting as well, it's really difficult for student athletes to identify as anything but a student or an athlete. And I think it gave people a really nice period of maybe rediscovery, finding some maybe talents they didn't know they had, discovering hobbies they really like, maybe getting into things that they weren't into before. I think it gave people an awesome period of time to really find ways to identify outside of just a student or an athlete. And I think the pandemic was really hard as um, we just spoke about kind of the isolation and everything that comes with it. I think it gave people kind of just, you know, looking for the silver lining there, an awesome opportunity to really find other ways to identify themselves. But I would say that isolation period was really difficult, especially for student athletes who, you know, want to practice their sport and get better. Maybe you have some athletes that play basketball indoors, and they need a gym or volleyball players. It was definitely hard for people to get their reps in and and people that need to play like tennis, you have to play mm-hmm. with other people. How how can you play with other people when we literally had to lift outside in masks and we, we had to lift individually and spray every surface down? We had to run literally in like boxes next to one another when we came back six feet apart at all times. Like it was crazy. And I think that was really hard for people not to be able to do the thing that they loved, which is their sport. So I think that was pretty
0: difficult. Yeah, it, it was like trying to find a new normal. Yeah. And it's trying to train in a new normal. Mm-hmm. Like it's just like running in a box, which is insane. Yeah. I know that coaches and different programs, I mean, the, the athletes at the pro level worked, were, I don't want to say they were totally fine and, and diminish any struggles that they went through, but they have all the financial resources in the world. I mean, pro mm-hmm. teams were sending, literally sending just weights and, and all this fitness equipment to these athletes' homes yeah. and they had, most of them have a gym, mm-hmm. but then for, for collegiate athletes, I mean, some people were on campus, they had to be quarantined, some were mm-hmm. at home, some got sick, then it, you know, disrupts. And then depending on your sport and your access to resources. You're right. I mean, yeah. you know, some basketball players because you know the basketball courts are everywhere. That's probably a little yeah. bit more accessible. But then for other sports, it wasn't. It wasn't really there. Yeah. I will tell you, it definitely challenged people's
1: creativity. That's definitely <laughs> the <thing it> did. <laughs> it, we
0: literally weren't allowed to pick up the lacrosse balls
1: with our hands. Like that's how. Really? It, like when we would go out and get extra reps when we got back to school, and like they still had a bunch of COVID protocols in place we literally were not allowed to pick up tennis balls, because we play with tennis balls sometimes, or lacrosse balls. We weren't allowed to touch them with our hands. Like It got to a point of like we really had to get creative with how we were gonna train. And I think that was really beneficial for some people. It, it really pushed them to be more creative. And I think that goes back to finding the different hobbies that make you really happy and that allow you to identify outside of student and athlete. I think it forced people to get creative, which I think was a unique experience uh, you know obviously covid was horrible and I would never want to minimize that but it really provided people with an opportunity that you know a lot of people I feel like took advantage of
0: yeah so some of these stressors could actually there could be in some ways a different or even like a positive outcome depending on what happens and so in many ways it allowed uh, maybe students and student athletes to explore who they are be- beyond just the their university identity and beyond that university setting but then other aspects of it certainly the isolation mm-hmm. not being able to train and cat so you were probably just graduate oh you had graduated so you were kind of transitioning into the workforce but what are your thoughts and and your sister is now a member of the women's lacrosse team so what are your what are your thoughts on just how the pandemic affected everybody
3: it yeah i mean i don't think the world has ever seen something that's on a mass level affected every single individual individual in some way. Um, I was in New York and my dad drove up in the middle of the night, picked me up because there were like all these rumors flying around, the bridges are gonna close, which like, whatever. But, you know, he, he <laughs> like- did not happen. Yeah, he like picked me up because my biggest fear was being isolated in a two bedroom, five story walk up mm. and not being able to get food, get water. And like, I, I need a support system. And so he picked me up. I watched my sister her freshman year just get yanked out of school and kind of was just waiting for that email of like, oh, we're going back. Maybe we'll go back next week, maybe the week after. And watching her kind of shift from just getting comfortable in an environment like Duke to all of a sudden being back home, it's it's hard. And watching that was really hard. I mean, I think what came out of it for us was like we got so much valuable bonding time. I mean, my parents would probably say it was too much because there were (laughs) four kids, four adult children in the house, but um, it, it, it really showed me the power of connectivity and the power of a support system. And like when you have people in your corner who when you have a bad day can pick you up and when they have a bad day, you can pick them up. And I think it just kind of, for me at least, I had had a few months out of business school and in business school I wasn't playing a sport so I did have to find out who I was outside of my sport but also for for someone like my sister who all of a sudden was like wait I kind of have to figure out other things to do like I'm not in practice three hours a day I think it just speeds up the process of graduating because ultimately everyone kind of has to find something and I think that's I found that to be a rolling process I mean I as a mom I feel like it's like you go working world, possibly, you know, whatever path you want to go, you have to figure out who you are outside of being a a wife, a mother, an employee for a company. And I think it's like cyclical. And the earlier you can learn those skills and those hobbies and those things you can come back to to center yourself, the better. Um, And I think the the pandemic offered a unique opportunity to do that in a sense.
0: Yeah. Oh my gosh, you're such great insight. You're going to be if or when you ever become a wife or a mom, you're gonna get it down pat because I feel like I'm still spinning my wheels. And I'm like, oh, my identity besides being a mom and all this other stuff. That's such, it really is such fantastic insight. And so interesting to hear the both of you, Kat and, um, Kat and Anna, talk about the pandemic. And so it starts off about, when you're describing it, it starts off, ah, oh, this is really tough. But then both of you actually pinpointed uh, the silver lining. For you, it was the connectivity and relationships for you, it was a creativity. Anna, so Ethan, let's let's show the other side of it because I know a lot of the work that you do is also seeing how it negatively affected people. So what's that part of the conversation?
2: Yeah, I, I think something to highlight from both of what you've said, Kat and Anna, is that this experience in many ways was different for everyone. Um, so we were all going through the same stressors and uh, you know worldwide experience, but everyone kind of had their own story in the pandemic. Um, and unfortunately, many, many people's story coming out of the pandemic now has been increased symptoms of anxiety, depression, burnout. Um, I think we are still learning all of the ways that the pandemic has affected us, um, physically and mentally, um, emotionally, People are are still reeling from a lot of those those negative consequences. So I think now on campus, what I'm seeing are are students having a real uh, tough time finding that same connectivity that was lost, um, finding those same support structures that previously may have just been um, easy or, or second nature to people coming into college. Um, now are are a lot more difficult. You know. In-person events have started back up, of course, but they may still not be at the level um, that they were before. And some people are still very anxious to engage in a lot of those um, events and and opportunities to connect with other students. So I think the ways that the pandemic is still affecting us um, are are creating a lot of situations of anxiety and and depression and burnout for students.
0: Yeah, you're exactly right. Uh, You know, I was... um, I was uh, interning at a college counseling center during the pandemic last year, and we certainly saw a lot of the things that you're talking about. I mean, there's a reason why clinicians and mental health counselors there became a really long wait list. I mean, still up in the tri-state area, I mean, it will take you six months waiting list to get, you know, get a session with a therapist or a psychiatrist, and That's why we saw, you know, during the pandemic, we saw depression, anxiety levels spike. We also saw increases in substance abuse again. We saw a lot of people relapse and they were going back to, um, you know, they were having to go back to rehab facilities and whatnot. We also saw rates of uh, domestic violence and and sexual assault. Um, And those people were locked in with their at home too. And so that became an even more dangerous situation. We also saw some, behaviors regarding eating disorders and disordered eating behaviors that began to spike as well because that's like the worst case scenario for for some of those patients to be sitting at home. So certainly, you know, when we're talking about stressors and I know we kind of went off on a tangent, but you're right, like we can't, when we're talking about the general stressors that are affecting all of us, you can't like not mention the pandemic. And so let's break it down and and talk about how do these stressors manifest themselves and i think this is really important because now we can begin to say oh wow i didn't even realize that it would affect me this way and that's important because now we can at least notice the signs for ourselves and maybe if somebody else is struggling right so within the academic setting how might this how might these stressors affect us
1: yeah i would say i'm a big like hyperfixator so i think when you're in you know your room taking online class, um, and you're like I remember sitting there on Zooms and everyone's camera would be off like there was no connectivity during the pandemic. I literally had professors being like, when we got sent home, being like, we're just not even gonna continue the course. Like I'm giving you guys all A's. Like, oh wow, I'm so sorry that you guys basically had to be sent home, and this is you know something that I want you guys to focus on your mental well being, your mental health like not everyone like i am so fortunate and blessed to have a family to go home to you know where my parents jobs were stable during this time where we had internet we had food on our table i am so privileged and fortunate to have had that experience but not everyone had that same experience and i think to the points we were making before about everyone had their own individual experiences what ethan was saying i was very fortunate in mine but you know, you never know what's going on behind those cameras that are off. You never know what people are going through. And I think I'm a big hyperfixator. So I was so hyper fixated on like, oh, I hope like my friends and the people in my classes are OK. But like, am I OK? Like you kind of start to go through this like cycle of like, wait, you now you're just sitting there like you yourself and I just kind of looking at yourself in the mirror like all right what can I hyper fixate on next like what can I focus on and I think with academics that that was really tough because you couldn't really focus on much like mm. the topics and things we were learning it was really easy for people to just log off and sit in their bed and go back to sleep like there were so many eight thirty classes that you know our poor professors are sitting there trying to teach passionately and you know they're talking to a screen of blank cameras, so I can imagine it was really difficult on professors as well, as well as the students are here with this, you know, willingness and wanting to learn all this information. So, I think that was definitely very difficult. Is that lack of ability to really learn um,
0: and the lack of ability for professors to teach. So, we were talking about how the stressors affect us in different categories. So we were just talking about how it affects us or how it might manifest in the classroom. I think the simplest symptom or, or result or consequence might be just we can't focus, right? You were talking a little bit about that, especially with the pandemic, mm-hmm. lack of focus. And then I guess the most apparent symptom would be just like a drop in, in grades. But can you, do you have any thoughts, uh, Kat or Ethan?
2: Yeah, I mean, I think there are a lot of academic-related coping mechanisms that people have. Um, For some people it might be diving really deep into their studies and you know that's where we see positive stress. Um, So there are levels of stress um, that can be good motivators you know when the the adrenaline rush you feel when you're getting ready for a big game or when you have a, a large exam coming up that can be a great motivator to play harder study harder um, but when we start talking about unhealthy levels of stress and anxiety, um, I think common coping mechanisms that a lot of people have are tuning it out, um, procrastinating work. And, and that manifests as bad grades, but there's a lot of things happening underneath the surface of um, not being able to take it all in and, and leading to things like burnout um, mm-hmm. when there's just too much to handle at once.
0: Yeah, that's a really good point because it's not just about the stressors affecting the classroom experience, but yet our school work could all of a sudden become our coping mechanism, which in some ways can be a good thing, but then if we dive into it too much, it can become the source of stress or add even more stress on our
3: shoulders. Kat, do you have any thoughts about this? I wasn't in the classroom during the pandemic, so not sure what I can add there. I think the biggest stressor I got was when I get the grade back and I put in all the work and the grade wasn't what I wanted it to be. And kind of the downfall from that was like, oh, I need to work harder next time. Like I need to spend an extra hour studying and whatnot. And that, I think, is where I built some unhealthy habits. and I know we're talking about in the classroom, but I think outside of the classroom, my stress release, because sports was also somewhat of a stressor, was going out. Mm-hmm. And I think that's that's a big theme for, for college kids, your first time away from home, first time with access to alcohol. Like I, that's where I really did myself a disservice in undergrad was like, that was my escape. That was the way I dealt with my stress in an unhealthy in an unhealthy way that I wasn't able to identify until I was at Fuqua for my year of business school. And I was like, wow, I don't feel like I need to go out tonight. (laughs) like, that's so weird. Like, and then I was like, oh, here's why. It's because I no longer am stressing about my grades as much or this as much. Like, I'm really just here to learn and my mindset was so different.
0: That's such an interesting point. And you're so right. And I think, I've actually talked to so many athletes And it's funny, because now at 41, I'm able to talk to a lot of my peers, and they can reflect back on their college experience. And even when maybe even just going out, that that's a that is a thing. That's part of the college experience. And so in many ways, you are encouraged to go out. Like, if you're not going out, then you're just kind of like, okay, what's wrong? Like, you need to be going out in college. Right. So in some ways like it's okay right but then the moment you realize like that is my only escape because athletics is causing me stress because a classroom aspect is causing me stress like now it becomes okay is going out and whatever getting wasted doing drugs whatever is that is that the healthy way of dealing with this type of stress so a lot of this is about self-reflection trying to have that self reflection, right? And awareness and being like, okay, why do I feel this need to go out and party so hard? And I actually saw some of my peers, you know, have substance abuse problems. But when you're in college, you just think like, you know, they're just kind of, they're having a good time. Like they're throwing the best parties, but looking back, you're like, oh, nah, that was, that was substance abuse.
3: It, yeah. And it is really interesting now being out of college, how people react to like, I, I'm, I'm 26 and how people react to, you know, 26 year olds who are acting as though they were in college. It's now frowned upon. Like they're like, get your act together. You're an adult versus like college as an excuse of kind of crossing that boundary of when you might have some unhealthy habits. So it, it's really interesting. I think yeah. as you get out of the college culture.
1: Yeah, <clears throat> I would say when I got back after the pandemic, I expected myself to like want to go out and like do so many things because we were like so pent up, especially in athletics. We had like a lot of rules surrounding COVID and what we were not allowed to do, who we were allowed to hang out with. Like there were periods of time where we couldn't hang out with anyone outside of our team. Mm-hmm. So then once all those things were up like released and we got kind of released out to do things a little bit more freely I then kind of found myself actually not wanting to go out as much because bringing back to the point that I mentioned earlier about getting creative learning some hobbies some other releases because during COVID during the pandemic my sport has always been my release and I, I wasn't able to do that and I'm like okay now I have to find other releases going on walks you know playing pickleball with my family like doing other things, you find other ways to like release those stressors. So for me, it was like going out and being social and doing fun things. And then I kind of realized in the pandemic, I, I had other ways to release and that creativity allowed me to maybe find other releases in that way. So I I feel very appreciative for those hobbies, I guess, that I learned because I think you see more of a, redu- like a reduction of people doing those unhealthy coping mechanisms. Mm-hmm. and definitely people of course love to go out like we're in college but you can see more of a balance of hey maybe you know I'm stressed out about school and sports I'm gonna go for a walk with a friend around East Campus Mm -hmm. or I'm gonna go do like a kickboxing class because like i like to do something else outside of my sport or I'm gonna go paint and you know go to the farmer's market with my friends like you see a lot more of those like wholesome fun activities we
0: were forced to do that you know yeah. and i think that's really interesting people really took to that mm-hmm. so what about we talked about the classroom what about athletic performance did it affect your athletic performance i'll start there so yeah tennis is a weird sport most most of it most of your junior career is individual right you, like you don't really start off playing doubles so you spend your entire, let's say, for me, it was about 11 years of your first uh, part of your athletic career being an individual sport. And once you get to college, now it's all of a sudden a team sport. And it's like you have to shift. And you're like, okay, you have teammates and you have expectations uh, from your coaches and your teammates and all these other things. And that, to me, was, uh, was just a shift. And it was also, it affected my performance because I couldn't, I felt so tight and we all know when you're tight as an athlete, that's when everything kind of goes downhill. Because you got to be loose, you got to be like you know, mu- and and lean on that muscle memory. So for me, I felt like I just didn't reach my potential or play the way I wanted to play because I so much was in my head. It's like you know, am I, am I really like, do I deserve my Duke scholarship? <laughs> I mean, that went through my head. Like, do I really belong to, belong here? Am I? Am I living up to my coach's expectations? Am I living up to my teammate's expectations? And am I living up to the Duke tradition? And it made it hard for me to like really play loosely and I think it it really stifled my performance. So as I share my experience, does anything come to mind for, for any of you?
1: Yeah, oh my gosh. Um, I feel like that for me is really like my, was my main struggle for a very long time. I showed up freshman year and like you have like you know this everyone is the best from their school everyone comes in as like the best like from their team from their town whatever it is and you come in thinking like you know you're very good and you have these expectations of yourself to perform at a high level I got so in my head I literally couldn't even catch and throw a ball like my thought every time a ball would come to me is like, oh my gosh, don't drop it, don't drop it. And I drop it. Like it was almost like I was like manifesting myself to drop the ball because I was so anxious about performing well. And I had to do a lot of work. I, I saw Dr. Sean Zeppelin, who was on this um, show yesterday. And I spent so much of my time with him focusing on how to get myself out of that headspace of like fearing failure rather than like you know, approaching it head-on and, like, learning from those things. And I spent a lot of time over the summer, you know, going into my sophomore year, like, getting myself into the right headspace, reading different books, you know, talking to Dr. Zeppelin a lot, talking to friends, sharing my experiences with my family and my friends and all that stuff, and I really had to dig myself out of this hole. And I've had a couple experiences like that where, you know, then I came back sophomore year and had a pretty good year of performance. And then I came back junior year and struggled again. And again, it was just this expectation of getting better every year and like feeling like I had to have a better year than my sophomore year for my junior year. And it was just this, you know, cycle of a mental battle that I would have with myself pretty much every year. And this year I feel like is the first year where I feel very comfortable actually and really excited and not thinking so much about my performance. But really about taking my last year and it's, you know, my fifth year, taking it for what it is and being just excited to be here and being so grateful that I've had this experience and that's taken a lot of pressure off my shoulders for like my performance and I'm coming back from injury. I got surgery over the summer and I feel like I'm performing at a really high level because I'm not worried about my own individual performance. I'm just excited about my experience Mm -hmm. and that's the first time I've had that and I'm so appreciative of that mindset shift so I feel like that's my experience. Kind of long-winded, but that's kind of been my experience. Well, it's a
0: complicated question. Yes. I, I get it. I'm at, I am mean, everything that we're talking about and all the questions I'm asking are so complicated. Yeah. Which is, And I, I really do understand that. So I'm going to ask you, I'm going to push you a little bit more. Yeah. When, when you talk about those struggles every single year, mm-hmm. was that, how did that manifest on the field? Did you... I yeah. mean, did you notice a drop in your statistics or did it affect your relationships with your coach or peers? Yeah, or?
1: I would say def- a definite like drop in my statistics. I wasn't taking risks and my junior years and I mean my freshman year, like I literally couldn't catch and throw a ball. Like I was such a head case, like you're a nervous freshman, you have all these different things, like you're away from home. I really struggled with, you know, like my sexual orientation and being comfortable with that, like that was really hard for me. So being comfortable in my own skin really really changed from freshman to sophomore year and i saw an increase in performance i think solely just gaining more comfort in myself but then you know once you add performance on top of it my junior year rolled around and i just like wasn't taking the same risks like one of like my i feel like greatest strengths as an athlete is like (laughs) i'm just gonna throw caution with the wind and just like attack everything i have and i feel like i'm a um a very aggressive player and i wasn't taking those same aggressive risks and i i performed not to the level i knew i could and then coming into senior year again you know i really focused on my experience rather than my performance and like playing with my teammates and not so much focusing on like how many goals am i gonna have how many assists you know how many goals are my teammates gonna have how many assists are they gonna have and like really just focused on like winning and like playing as a team and doing all those fun things and i think that really helped me perform at a better level. But after the pandemic, I think kind of bringing it back to that, a lot of athletes only had time to like individually work on themselves. So you saw people coming back with that level of burnout of like, oh my gosh, the only thing I've been able to do is go do wall ball and shoot on my own. And I come back and I'm like, oh gosh, like I have to go and like do wall ball. I have to go and shoot on my own. This year and last year, I felt like I, I get to go and do these things. Like I'm excited to do these things. and. I think that was also that shift is like that burnout of, you know, my junior year was right after the pandemic, like, oh my gosh, I have to go out and do wall ball. I have to go out and shoot, changing
0: that mindset of like, I get to go and do it. Mm-hmm. that makes sense. Yeah, it, it really does. Kat, how about for you?
3: Yeah, I came in as a recruited walk-on. So I came in with major imposter syndrome where I was constantly like, does everyone think I suck? does. Like, did I earn my spot here? Am I earning my keep? Like, and that was a constant cloud of stress. And it was a narrative that I had created in my own mind. Like there was no, there was never anything externally within like being treated differently by teammates or coaches. It was truly like me putting that on myself of being like, you weren't good enough to get actually recruited. Like, are you good enough to to play with these girls? And for the first, like, year or two, like, Anna says she couldn't catch her throw. I could not pick up a ground ball. Like, you scoop the ball. I would be alone, no one near me, and I couldn't pick it up. I cannot tell you the amount of times I'd have to go off on my own and get extra reps, like, in the middle of the drill because Mm -hmm. it was so bad, and that was, like, a trickle-down effect of, like, ground balls have always been my thing. Like, that's Mm -hmm. always been something I can rely on. Like, holy crap, what am I doing here? And, And it honestly wasn't until... similar to what Anna had had talked about until I was like, you know what, like, at the end of the day, I don't have any scholarship attached to my place on this team. I get to decide every single day if I want to come to practice, if I want to show up, and the second that I no longer want to do that, I can walk away, and so I felt like that was my that was kind of like my peace of mind of like, every single day it's gonna be my decision, there's nothing over my head, and that told me I really did wanna do this, and I really did wanna be here, and that I did have a spot, and I needed to trust that there was a reason I was mm-hmm. offered a spot on the team, and that yes, I need to show up every single practice, and even if it's not, I was injured a lot, so even if it's not physically, it's <coughs> mentally and emotionally, cheering on my teammates, being their biggest um. cheerleaders, like yelling for the girl who, you know, might be having an off day. Like, how can I support from a team perspective? And I think a lot of teams are always like, there's a glue girl or there's a glue guy. And like, I don't want to, I'm not like saying I was that person, but I tried to be like, how do I glue people together and really bring that camaraderie and add value in a way where I feel like I am making a difference and I'm a value add. Like I'm, I'm a net positive add to this team, not a net neutral or a net negative. Like, where can i find my value and it was never on the field and like that sucks i think as like athletes we want to be on the field we want to be contributing but i really ended up finding value my senior year being like in scout team and just kind of like messing around like trying to prep my teammates for games and then on the sidelines being their biggest cheerleaders being like that was a sick play or like you know giving like hey they're doing this or they're doing that um, and so that was like where it kind of manifested for me and it took a while. Like it wasn't Hmm. easy to find that mental, I guess, view on it. Like it's really hard. Like no one tells you how hard it is to one, go to college, like be a college student and two, play college athletics. It's kind of like, it's this beautiful thing. It's gonna be amazing. You've worked so hard to get it and no one's really like, hey, sometimes things are really crappy.
0: Yeah. And I think that's also really, I mean, I think this is important conversation for for administrators and coaches as well. And this is not to imply that your coach didn't do that too, but just to serve as a reminder for coaches that explaining the dynamics of a team and that your value as an athlete and a member of the team is to not just be the star player, not just to pump out the most, to be the the scoring leader on the team. Like you can be that glue person, like you can be that cheerleader. And that's what I was as well. I mean, listen, I was a top 10 nationally ranked player going into Duke and I was a member on the U.S. um, on the national team. I barely, I could barely get on the lineup because they had, we had a gazillion number one, like all were number one in the country at one point in their career. And I was just like, I can't even get on this lineup. Like, I, what am I doing here? You know, and by the end, and then I had three surgeries my junior year. So my sophomore year, I had a shoulder surgery in both knees in three consecutive months. So you're like, what? A, I, I can't even like add to this team, but you're right. It's a shift in perspective, right? And this is a message to all the athletes and students, whatever, like your your output and your contribution to a team or to society is not about just good grades and biggest salary and biggest accomplishments. You, you can contribute to in in different ways. And so, Kat, you were talking about you like the your strength like fell apart because you got in your own head and and you lost a bit of confidence. And Ethan, I think it's it's interesting because like. When you look at just a student athlete or just student experience, when you lose confidence in one area, you kind of like lose confidence in other areas. Like that happened to me in my tennis game because I was like, now my, you know, my academics and my social, my self esteem, my confidence, and everything else. And I know so much of what you do is within the mental health space. So let's get into that kind of that part of the conversation. When things begin to fall apart, what happens to students? Do you think?
2: Yeah, I mean, whether it's imposter syndrome or, or whatever, whatever factor is swirling around in a student or a student-athlete's head, um, it can be insidious and, and it can very quickly spiral down into something more serious. Um, so when students uh, don't have the support structures they need to talk about that or don't feel comfortable having those conversations um, or feel that there's a stigma in their community around that, Um, or might hold um, identities that that make it hard for them to talk about that um, with the people around them. It can be very uh, isolating and lonely to have all of that swirling around in your head, uh, be caught in a a spiral of of negative emotion, um, and end up in in a very dark place quickly um, without the right people to go to or, or places to seek help.
0: Yeah, and so now we're kind of diving into the part of the conversation. We've talked about how the stressors can manifest themselves in the classroom, athletic performance, different coping mechanisms, whether that's diving into our academics or going out and partying and all this other stuff. And now we're talking about the mental health implications, right, because it can emerge in depression or depression depressive symptoms or anxiety or social withdrawal or um, eating disorders or body image issues, confidence, suicidality, I mean all of these things. And one thing that I learned in my internship last year at the College Counseling Center is that this is a period around 18 to early adulthood when we begin to see some of these clinical symptoms, these mental health symptoms and issues, it's actually – when they actually emerge. And so it kind of makes sense. It's like, okay, this is normal. Like why we would begin to see some of these these things because when you, when you look at the developmental course of some of these uh, mental health issues, that's when they emerge. Kat, you were talking about some of the depression and anxiety that you experienced. Can you talk about that and, and share a little bit more of your journey?
3: Yeah, definitely. Um, I, I was, was blessed by my mother's side of the family with a cam impingement in my hips. So I had two hip surgeries by the end of my junior year. And when you, like, again, it's it's similar to the pandemic, when you're injured, your identity in your sport is taken from you. And it's also your identity of just being like an athlete in general, like being on crutches, wearing a brace. I couldn't even bend over to tie my shoe, taking a shower, had to be like, a whole process, right? So that was really hard and after my second surgery, I spent the summer in Durham and completely isolated myself. I mean, I slept probably like 16 hours a day and I wow. chalked it up to, oh, I'm healing. And I lived with um, what we both played with her. I lived with one of my teammates and like she'd be like, let's go do this. And I'd be like, I'm really tired. Like, I'm good, I'm just gonna sit on the couch. And that was when, you know, my depression depression had come to fruition. And, I mean, this is a little bit dark, but, like, I would be driving home over the summer from, from Duke to Northern Virginia, and we'd, I'd drive over bridges, and I'd be like, I could just end it here. I'd be like, but then, you know, and i think through these thoughts, and I, at the time, I was like, well, I'm not going to act on it. I'm not going to do anything about it. And I think it had all boiled up from the expectations of being at Duke, not getting that internship, not being able to play a sport I loved, feeling like my friends were overseas in Italy or at their internships. And like, what was I doing? Like, why? Like, what am I doing here? You know, like, this mm-hmm. isn't where I thought I would end up. And ultimately, it came to a breaking point. And like, I had called my mom, my mom picked me up, and I went to a psychiatrist, and I, sorry, I'm giggling again, because they're falling. <laughs> but I went to a psychiatrist, and it was the first time I really felt like I was educated on mental health and chemicals in your brain. And that's not something they teach you in FLE in sixth grade, that's not something mm-hmm. they teach you in high school and health class, but like, I had a psychiatrist sit me down and say, here's what serotonin looks like, here are the blockers, here is what scientifically is going on, and I was like, oh, I am normal, like, I am going to be okay. Like, this is something that ha- isn't just happening to me. I'm not the only one. That doesn't mean I'm going to be okay tomorrow, but like, I am going to be okay. There is a light at the end of the tunnel. And that's, I don't think, something that's openly one. I don't think there's enough education, especially like on college campuses. And I think it should be happening sooner, whether it's not at home, but like in high school, middle school, in classrooms where you're educating people on signs symptoms what you can do to help your mental health and like what's actually going on chemically in your brain but that was the first time once i learned about the specifics that i was like now that i understand this i can digest it and i can identify what is actually going on and when i get if i ever get back to that place i can you know have more cues of like okay this is what we did the last time this is who we're going to call this is where we're going to go to um And so that's a little bit about my journey with depression.
0: Yeah. Thank you so much for for opening up and sharing your story. I think that's really, really, really important for people to hear. And it sounds like that path happened right after your injury, which is very normal. Yes. Um, Very, very normal to validate your experience. I'm sure there's a lot of athletes or just general people who are going to. So it's actually quite normal. And that's something that I've been learning as well, the difference between active and passive suicidal ideations. So passive or typical ones, it it might be a fleeting thought. And those are actually quite normal during periods of high, high stress. And that was a period when you're going through a really big transition. Um, And that's something that one of my supervisors had taught me last year. And admittedly for me, it's that I have never had any sort of suicidal ideations before, but during the pandemic due to um, stress COVID, we have two kids at home. Um, I had a- actually experienced some of those passive suicidal ideations for one reason or another. And it really ultimately boils down to like, okay, the processing of like, okay, what options do I have to deal with all this? So thank you for, for sharing that a little bit more. If I could ask one more question about that, what did you learn in, your, uh, in sitting with a psychiatrist in terms of like, what was helpful for you in terms of processing everything that you were going through?
3: Yeah, I mean, I don't think I'd be able to, like, quote her. She, she was an angel. I always say she was, like, my guardian angel. Um, but she brought out an iPad. She ha- drew squigglies in different colors and really, like, illustrated what was going on. And then she told me further, you know, I went on antidepressants. And she mm-hmm. was like, this is what they're doing. And this is how, this is the timeline. This is X, Y, Z. And I, I felt like with that, I felt really more comfortable and like, my journey moving forward. And then beyond that... I looked at like other holistic aspects of like you know there's a lot there's a lot of studies about gratitude and focusing on the things you do have versus the things you don't and being present in the moment and something I learned recently which I I somewhat I think subconsciously knew is like anxiety lives in the future like if you're in the present and you're worrying about the future that's where anxiety thrives like if you look back to the past you're not getting anxious about things that are, have happened in the past, you're getting anxious about things that could come from your past actions, and that's something that I try to remind myself of, like, I can only control what I can control, I control what comes out of my mouth, I control, like, who I surround myself with, but beyond that, other people, I can't control them, and I still do get anxious about, you know, things in my vicinity, but to a certain extent, it's like, you're not behind the driver's wheel Mm -hmm. with other, other people, and that's, that's helped too.
0: Yeah, yeah, thank you for sharing that. And so you really learned from that experience. And it sounds like getting that validation from the psychiatrist and recognizing, like, this is actually normal, and then yes. boiling it down, bringing in the bi- biological aspects of it. And so, Anna, for you, you mentioned a little bit about your sexual identity as well. And this is an important conversation as well because it shows that our own personal development and evolution is going to impact our college experience, yeah. right? Because that's so important. You had such an awesome article in Inside uh, Lacrosse talking about your experience. So can you talk a little bit about that and, and what it meant for you in terms of the mental health implications?
1: Yeah, I think anyone who isn't comfortable in their own skin and we kind of had mentioned it before, once you lose confidence in one aspect of your life, you lose it in every other aspect of your life as well. I came into college just immediately anxious about, oh my gosh, well, what's everyone gonna think of me? Like I came from, An area like not talking about my family because my family is amazing, so supportive. Like I have such a strong support system at home with my friends, like the people close to me. But definitely, like in an area that it it wasn't talked about. You know, people in the LGBTQ plus community were not really talked about um, where I where I grew up. And that's not like people were saying anything negatively. It just wasn't really talked about. And so when I came here, I was like, oh my gosh, no one's like me. I don't, like, I feel so uncomfortable. I think everyone's gonna think that I'm weird. Like, I don't want anyone to think anything, like, weird of me, like, in, like, a locker room space, or, like, they're my teammate. Like, you know what I mean? Like, there was just so many thoughts that went through my head that people were going to judge me based off of just this one way I identified, which was not the case now that I look back on it. But it's so consuming, and it was pretty much everything I thought about, like, I didn't want to tell anyone then like people were slowly finding out and like then I was worried about like the chatter that went on behind my back and once I just accepted the fact that like people are going to talk about it and like I just had to be okay with it that's when I feel like I had kind of the wherewithal to be more confident and comfortable in who I am and I think once I was able to do that I just saw such an increased like met, like I just felt like I performed at such a higher level once I was confident in who I am and I knew that I had people that supported me because my teammates support me, my coaches support me and love me and all that stuff. And once I like really saw that and like those anxieties that we, that Cactus had mentioned, um, I just had to be more present and just appreciate, you know, that I'm in a really good place. I'm at Duke, you know, I have such a great support system around me. I was able to just perform at a much higher level.
0: So it, so it sounds like your sexual identity and not, and recognizing that and accepting that, was that the thing that was, or the primary force that was affecting your athletic performance? I would say just that um, coupled with like the expectations I had of myself. Mm -hmm. And then Mm -hmm.
1: also I was injured my freshman year. So I did get surgery the fall of my freshman year. And like Kat can probably tell you fall freshman year is like such an important learning experience as an athlete. And on top of that, I was a midfielder. So like you had two sides of the ball that you needed to learn and like change. And when I came back, they just kind of moved me to attack because I just like thought that like teaching you two sides of the ball in the spring was just gonna be too hard. And just, it, it was really difficult to miss that fall season and, and a big learning curve and a big learning moment. And I came in back into the spring and just really, really struggled because I felt like everyone had already gotten that process of learning out of the way, and I was just starting it. So yeah. I think that um, was really hard. But then also, you know, the sexual identity and not being super comfortable with myself and who I was was really difficult. It was really hard on me.
0: Yeah. So now um, we're real, we're when you share your story, we're recognizing the the complexity of events. Actually, both of you guys, both of you guys suffered mm-hmm. um, really bad injuries, and so yeah. now you're isolated, getting adjusted for you. Uh, Anna, it was your fall year, and then the sexual identity component, trying to figure out your place on on the team and everything. Mm-hmm. If you don't yeah. mind, you you wrote such a beautiful piece in Inside Lacrosse. Could I read Thank this you, a of little course. bit? Yeah. Although I am now back to this person, I still make it a priority to focus on my mental health and my emotions. After a few years of practice, I still have days when I question who I am and my ability to be happy. But that is of all a part of the process. Like I said, growth is not linear, it's a never-ending process of ebbs and flows. Although I never struggled with a diagnosable mental health disorder, I know plenty of people that do. And over the summer, going into my sophomore year, my team and I tragically lost a teammate and friend, Morgan Rogers, to realize that detrimental struggles with mental health are often overlooked and invalidated because of harsh stigma surrounding mental health. Let me read that again. My team and I tragically lost a teammate and friend, Morgan Rogers, to suicide. And to this day, that was one of the most difficult things I've gone through. After Morgan's passing, I realized that detrimental struggles with mental health are often overlooked and invalidated because of harsh stigma surrounding mental health. I made a major change to my expectation for myself after this, to never let people suffer in silence. I wanted to tackle this by removing the stigma of mental health from the athletic community. The stigma starts with the tough it out mindset that is so normalized in most athletic communities what is it like to read that out to hear yeah. that back out loud um,
1: I mean I still really you know stand with kind of all those things that I said I, I think when you're younger and you're a freshman and now being a fifth year and you know I was 18 years old when I was a freshman and now I'm 22 years old I think just the growth mindset that I have switched to rather than just like this tackle this, you know, everything that I have in front of me, it's just kind of growing with each experience that I've had. And I think growth being not linear, I think is something that, or it is linear, but there are like ebbs and flows, like within that linear process, I think is something that is really important to remember and remind people of. There are days like, and I kind of have this, like front about myself, like that I kind of just like walk in and I'm like, oh, I'm so happy and positive and like love talking to people like, I really struggle with like social anxiety, and you know, going home and being like, "Oh my gosh, like, I said this, I said this," like laying awake at night, like thinking about like the interactions I've had throughout the day, and I really like feel like I mask that pretty well. When I was younger, I feel like I did, but now I'm a lot more open with that and being like, you know what, I do struggle with these things. Like I'm not like always like super happy-go-lucky. Like that mask, I can remove it around the people that I feel supported by, and I think. There are days that are worse than others where I like really, you know, struggle and am feeling like I'm a little bit anxious or on edge. And just the difference of being able to show that to people
0: Mm -hmm. versus previously I felt like I really had to hide that, Mm -hmm. you know? And it's really about owning your own story and your journey and your narrative and becoming comfortable with yourself. And so Anna and Kat, I know you do so much uh, meaningful work associated with Morgan's message, and I want to go back to that. I want to bring Ethan into the conversation. So now, Ethan, after hearing Anna and Kat's story and their own personal journeys, you know, over at UNC, um, you know, it wasn't too long ago that there was a string of, of suicides. So we're obviously talking about just the mental health implications. But what are you just, I want to leave it open to you to engage in this conversation, however, however, which way you want, whether it's your personal experience or what you were just seeing over on campus.
2: Yeah, um, I think what part of, both Kat and Annie, you both touched on this, but part of what makes depression and anxiety uh, so dangerous is that it, convinces us of the lie that we're alone. Um, and that, I think, is, is what often leads to suicidality and, and feelings like there may not be any other option left. Um, I have had personal experiences with diagnosable mental health and um, and have found my path through that, luckily. Um, I owe that completely to the, the support structures around me and the, the people that have... Helped me along that journey and allowed me to open up, um, but I, I have also seen it in others um, go down very different routes, um, and I, I think, um, UNC is not unique right now on in this country of dealing with uh, the the issue of a mental health crisis on college campuses um, and a a crisis of um, of teen suicide and t- adolescent suicide. Um, UNC had this trouble last year. Um, and this year we've seen uh, deaths on NC State's campus just down the road in, in Raleigh as well. So th- these are, are are relevant issues, not just for, for student athletes, but um, I think anyone in the college and, and adolescent young adult space. Depression and anxiety, like I said, are, are dangerous um, if, if they go Unaided, um, if people don't find the right support, Um, and if people aren't offered the right support, uh, I think it it's a onus on everyone, um, whether you're a teammate, you're a a friend, a peer, uh, a professor, a coach, um, an administrator, to always be willing to be that that hand that someone needs um, to look out for the people around you, Um, because I think. The, the silence aspect of it the loneliness um, it often we often see depression and anxiety in people that we would never expect um, in some of my early experience with um, in community-based response to suicide especially suicide in young people um, is that it's the it's the high achievers um, oftentimes it's it's people that everyone says um, they were the person I would have gone to if I if I needed help um, so it's it's insidious, and it's um, it's hard to to notice a lot of the time. So um, often, it's not about picking it out of a crowd, um, but just cultivating the type of relationships and support um, where anyone at any time can can feel open to having that conversation with you.
0: That was a, such a fantastic, uh, an honest response, and I appreciate that. And I'm so glad that you know you pointed out it is just kind of this societal and I don't, maybe in many ways, a universal issue and experience, right? It's not just prevalent at Duke or UNC or said university. I mean, this is a universal thing that we're seeing across the nation. And we're just talking, you know, I'm not talking specifically about suicidality. I'm talking just like mental health, right? Because mental health is not... Let's, again, we said it yesterday during yesterday's panel discussion. I'm going to say it again. I'm going to say it at every single conversation. Mental health is not just about dysfunction or illness or disorder, right? It's just about, to me, it's just about being human and and living, right? So, and and you're right. I think that, and again, I want to appreciate, send my gratitude to all of you for being so courageous and and coming here on this (laughs) conversation because what you were just talking about, I think a lot of people can get really scared to come in this conversation because they don't want to get, you know, it's hard. It's already hard enough as it is and no one wants to be blamed. And this is not a conversation about blaming anybody or blaming UNC about what happened. Um, But it's also about pushing this conversation forward and for us to not sit in silence and for us to not discuss it, but talk about what did we learn? So what, what do you think was maybe a learning lesson from some of those things about how we can further help this community and everybody else across the country.
2: I, I think one of the <laughs> the largest lessons that, that come out of any of these experiences, you know, I, I hate to talk about needing these kinds of experiences or, or the instance of a, a student suicide to spark action or, or to find a lesson, um, because I think they're lessons that we can take from not just crises and tragedy, but just from our daily lives of, you know, um, connecting with people and being genuine in your relationships is, is the first step. Um, people want to connect with each other. They, they want to have relationships where people are open to not just have the mask on and be the perfectionist, the high achiever, the happy, go-lucky person all the time. But um, I think the relationships we all want to have are the ones where we can come in on a bad day and, and recognize that. Um, so the first lesson is, is cultivating those kinds of relationships. So if you're in a position of leadership, whether you're a team captain in, in the student-athlete sense, um, or if, you know, you're a president of a club or involved in some other way on campus, having the, the, um, the knowledge and the skills um, to, to cultivate those kind of relationships and, and grow um, supportive structures I think is is so crucial to making sure people have um, supportive spaces to turn to. Um, and then second, you know, a little bit more on the training and skills part to be able to bring that um, is I think people should seek out to uh, the knowledge to, to be able to be that person that people can come to. Um, so there's great trainings around suicide prevention, uh, mental health first aid. We talk about, you know, CPR training and, and a lot of mm-hmm. people have to go through that in the student athlete world um, to be uh, you know on a field and, and participating in a physical activity. Um, but we should also recognize that there's just as much importance to having that kind of training to be a, a mental health first aid um, uh, supporter.
0: Yeah, thank you. And you're right, cult- cultivating those relationships, creating spaces, creating resources. And so Anna and Kat, I know the both of you are heavily involved in Morgan's message and initiative aimed at eliminating the stigma surrounding mental health, especially within the student athlete community. So um, Kat, let's start with you. If you could explain just a little bit about your involvement and wh- what really this this mission is.
3: Yeah. Um Like Anna had mentioned earlier, we both lost a friend and teammate, Morgan Rogers. Uh, She died by suicide in July of 2019. And that was, I think, somewhat like earth shattering, at least for me, because I kind of was like, that could have been anyone. Like, yes, Morgan struggled, but it's not just Morgan. Like it could have been my sister. Could have, like in the right. Like it's not just her. It's like there are other people who I was on a team with, or who I went to Duke with, who are on other athletic teams that they struggled with some of the same things, and somehow they were able to get the help that they needed. They were able to like raise their hands, and Morgan was not. And why was that? Like, what did she feel that didn't allow her to ask for that help? And I think it comes back to like with that education and it's educating people in these positions of power, it's educating teammates, it's educating the individual as to like what the resources are, what different mental health, you know, anxieties, depression, what those look like and what those feel like Mm -hmm. to try to identify them within yourselves. And you know, a year later, a group of us who had, you know, knew Morgan in different capacities. So a few friends from high school were on our club team, her mom, her twin sister, we got together and it was basically a conversation of not enough's being done. Like Morgan's not the first, she's not gonna be the last. Like we know this is an issue. What can we do about it as people who have watched someone we love struggle and also struggled ourselves and also don't understand totally what, you know, should, what the conversation should be, but like knowing that you know from like a, a family perspective, like that wasn't something that you know we were necessarily talking about. Like you know Kurt and Donna, like they had no idea how to ask or talk about mental health because it wasn't something they had experienced when they were younger. And we knew there needed to be more done. And if you know these student athletes weren't going to get the support at the university level, like what could we be doing to provide an outlet and and even before Anna came in the picture, like the first thing we were going to do was start a podcast, start some sort of storytelling platform where people could safely come, listen to a story, and then see themselves within that story and say, okay, I'm not alone. This is what this person did. Yeah, it worked for them. It might not work for me, but like I noticed that there are similarities. There are parallels. Like I can raise my hand and like giving them courage and a safe space to come. And Anna really raised her hand and said, hey, I have a mental, and you can tell me if this, off but like I have a group at Duke I'm really focused on mental health like I've experienced it I want to help start this conversation I want to bring Morgan's message to Duke how do we do that Hmm. and Anna raising her hand and saying like this is an issue we need to talk about it and like we can do this together like we're stronger in numbers how do we collaborate and that's what kicked off the ambassador program that now has grown to like 400 campuses, which is crazy. And I always say it's crazy the amount of growth because you know that there's a need. Like mm-hmm. you know that there is a demand for this or else it would not, Morgan's message would not have grown as exponentially as it has the past two years. Um, and Anna's done an amazing job at Duke. And I mean, we're so lucky to, to have her on board. I mean, she's a rock star. <laughs> Thank you,
1: no. No, I, I think, um, to Kat's point, I just remember texting Miss Donna actually and I was on my way down to Duke from, I think it was like going back to school from COVID. And I texted her and was like, I just wanna stop by and like, first of all, check in, like see how you guys are doing. And then I also like had kind of an idea and I remember stopping by and I was there literally for like five hours just because they're the best. And like, they really are the best and like had such a great conversation, but then, kind of had mentioned it. the name of the group that we had was literally like mental health advocacy for student athletes. Like there was literally like no name. It was very rough. It started May during the pandemic and we had a couple meetings and I was like, I really feel like it should be named after Morgan or we should really try to like interloop Morgan into this. So I had pitched that idea to um, Miss Donna and she was like, okay, Funny you say that because we have a nonprofit that we started or we're working on starting called Morgan's Message. So like roughly we were like, okay, Morgan's Messengers, like what do we do to like get this out there? And then that's kind of where the ambassador program was born from. And again, like just the support that I've had from people like Kat and, you know, all the people on board at Morgan's Message to start this program. It was the first ambassador program. It was kind of like a little pilot launch to see how things went. And we've had it for so long, and it's done so well. And, I mean, not not to say that, you know, I don't want to be like, oh, can you hear me? Can you hear me? Okay, sorry. I don't want to be like, oh, Morgan's message has, like, changed the lives of so many people on Duke's campus. But, like, I really think it has. And people have really told. I think it has, too. Yeah, and I think people have really told us directly, like, how much it's changed just in my small circle, the lives of student athletes at Duke, just to see that it's being talked about, and to have a space where they can be like, hey, I have a shared experience. I, I, I'm i feeling a lot of anxiety about performance. Okay, like let's talk about performance anxiety in our next meeting. People feel not as alone, you know, and especially on the men's side of athletics. We really need more talked about, um, especially for men's mental health. Men's mental health in athletics is just not talked about enough, and We're working on partnering with Movember, which is like that, um, where people grow their mustaches for um, prostate and testicular cancer health, uh, and then it's also for men's mental health. So we're working on this November kind of partnering with them, and I just think that's an aspect that we can continue to grow and work on, but this ambassador program has changed the lives of so many, and you know, I was in my conversation with Miss Donna and Mr. Kurt. They were saying, you know, Morgan really liked the idea of being a sports psychologist. So I think it's really, really cool that we get to do the work that she wanted to do. And um, I just feel very honored and blessed to be part of something so amazing um, with so
0: many amazing people.
1: So, yeah.
0: That's so cool. I mean, as the both of you talk about this... And spreading the word and providing a platform and a space for people to talk about this. Even if they're not talking about it, to engage in the space the way they want, I just get chills because, you know, you're you're doing angels and angels work, you know, and, and that's that's just so uh, that's so amazing. And I think you're right. I think we need to talk about it. So, you know, there's this concept that people, clinicians, some clinicians have talked about, suicide contagion. So I'm gonna read the definition of it because it's one that I'm still learning about, admittedly, okay? And th- the definition of suicide contagion is exposure to suicide or suicidal behaviors within one's family, peer group, or media reports of suicide, and that that influences others to end their own life or attempting suicide. So there's diff- different views of this. So basically, to break it down in layman's terms, is the thought of just talking about suicide actually somehow increases other people's likelihoods of thinking about it or actually attempting and executing the act of killing themselves. So I admittedly was a part of a separate conversation that was part of a broadcast. And before we began our show, there was a conversation of this. And the belief was that we can't, we're not gonna talk about it on today's show and it was about student-athletes. And it was shortly after we, had, we saw the string of suicides across the nation. And I didn't know what to say. You know, I've, I've been in broadcasting for 18 years, and I was like, well, I'm just a doctoral student, you know, so what am I going to say? So we didn't, for the next 30 minutes, we didn't talk about it. And everybody, it was like the elephant in the room, right? So, and I come from a background where not talking about it, didn't help. So, that didn't work. So, I'm like, I feel like we need to talk about it. Can I just get your general thoughts on what would you say and how would you be a part of this discussion when somebody says, "We can't talk about it because we think
3: that that might influence others." I this is really interesting because I have a like very clear perspective on this and background is my one of my brother's best friends, his he lost his brother, his brother died by suicide, and my mom was at the funeral. This is when I was in high school, I wanna say, and she was talking to the dad, and the dad was like, you know, I asked him every single day, do you, like, are you going to try to end your life today? How are you feeling? And I asked him that because I was involved with therapy, like all these things, and she he, he said to my mom, like, I know I'm not putting that idea in his head. If it is there, it's there because he's thinking about it. And he has access to the internet, he has access to all these different thoughts, and my mom took on the perspective of like, instead of being fearful that I'm giving my child this idea, I'm giving my child the opportunity to voice if they are having thoughts about it. And so that's how we approached it, and that's how I kind of approached it, is like, are you struggling? Are you thinking about hurting yourself? Because chances are, if you're saying it to someone, If they are, they're thinking about it already. You aren't introducing this, you're not inventing a vacuum, right? Like it's like this idea is out there in the open and I feel really passionate about Lee that if we don't talk about it, people aren't gonna feel safe with raising their hands, right? Like if we're not having these conversations like loneliness, depression, they thrive in the shadows. They thrive inside our minds. And when we vocalize and we think through and we talk through and we, talk to people we feel safe with that's when we get out of that loneliness in our head so I feel passionately that like it needs to be a conversation because you're not introducing it for the first time and if the more you know and the more you can tell about their reaction of like oh no like when people get cagey right like if a friend gets cagey when you're like are you gonna hurt yourself that's a sign that like maybe you need to talk to someone else to get them help so I yeah I, I don't think I think not talking about it is one of the worst things you can do in my opinion.
0: Thank you for saying that. We need to hear, and I know that took a lot of guts and courage for you to say that, um, but people need to hear this. There's a lot of people that that believe in this. And this is not to say that this concept, concept and construct is not true, but it's how we talk about it, right? Because we can have a productive conversation about it where it can be helpful and informative and educational, right, and so I, I think the suicide contagion aspect, they're kind of seeing that it has to do more with the media reporting and how it is reported or broadcasted to to the general society. So Kat, thank you so much for, for pointing that out. Ethan, do you have any thoughts about this?
2: Yeah, I, I've seen suicide contagion um, and I couldn't agree more with Cat. I mean, every s- instance that I've seen of suicide contagion happens not because uh, people were talking about suicide or, or people were opening up that conversation, but because they were intimately exposed uh, to someone they knew, or a peer, um, someone within their direct community, um, and it it normalizes the idea that suicide is an option for for people. Who are experiencing hopelessness. Mm-hmm. Um, so I have never heard of an instance that talking about suicide or asking someone um, if they are uh, contemplating suicide or, or if or just asking someone how they're how they're doing in a real meaningful way of you know are you experiencing depression. Um, I've never seen an instance that those types of questions or just opening up the topic um, become heightened risk for, for someone attempting. Um, so it's, we need to be having this conversation um, and ignoring it doesn't solve the problem. It, it only um, drives it deeper into the ground um, and, and only makes it more real for many people.
0: That's such a great point. And so drawing both of your points together. So suicide contagion might be a real thing because of exposure to that because individuals think that that is one of their few options that they have. And that's what suicidality really boils down to, is like we need to expand everybody's um, view and perspective and let them know there are other options out there. So suicide contagion, um, the way you described it, Ethan, so it is a real thing. However, the discussion point may not necessarily be maladaptive, or it it should be hopefully helpful in a way if we're talking about it in, in a compassionate and informed manner. Kat, do you have any? just general thoughts about just even just the discussion aspect of it?
1: Yeah, no, I would say, so the one thing that I can think about and just in general terms of mental health, so when we introduced Dr. Zeppelin to the Duke athletic program, his first year was five years ago. It was my first year. He saw about 20% of student athletes um, coming in for appointments. Now he sees like well over 50%. So Because people are seeing him more, that doesn't mean that, like, because I'm talking about, like, feeling anxious and having performance anxiety or maybe struggling with symptoms of depression, I'm talking about that to Kat. Kat's then, like, oh, yeah, now that you're talking about it, I'm also now going to struggle with those things. Now I have to go see Sean. Like, people are seeing him because I'm talking about it, and then Kat's, like, oh, you're seeing Dr. Zeppelin. Do you mind, like, sending me his number? I'd love to go and see him too. So talking about it normalizes it and makes people feel more comfortable to go see behavioral health professionals and really be open about their struggles. I think, it, like Kat was saying, and like Ethan was saying, it doesn't put the idea into people's heads. It just makes it more of a safe space to be like, okay, this is normal. I'm struggling with something that's normal and something that can be fixed and I, I can be helped, you know?
0: That's such a good point. I mean, it, it, it makes me, I'm not, smiling or laughing at the topic but it makes such it makes so much sense because yeah. it's like it's not like when you're talking about if we talked about something else, oh my anxiety you know I'm not gonna go that sounds like a good idea you know what I'm gonna do that too <laughs> yeah. so you know, right so the discussion aspect is um, you're right it, it, it really it really is important. So for me as a soon to be psychologist, this was—I um, don't know—I kind of see it as a risk for me because there's a lot of people that might be listening out right right now, and I'm just going to air it out, right? Because this is what it is. This is the LG transparent conversations. There's probably going to be a lot of people saying, "Prem is not yet a clinician." Now this is kind of teetering on what ethicalities. She's talking about this from you know the position of you know whatever, and and could. This pose a risk to others and so this is a risk that I'm taking but I'm willing to take because I don't know this is just and and what you all just said makes me feel good that we're talking about it so I'm curious about any advice that you have for me if that ever does happen again and it will happen again then I'm in a meeting where people are in a position of power like real power and it's being broadcasted and they say, hey, we can't talk about it. And that not talking about it might be influenced by whatever else. Maybe it's fear, maybe it's liability, fear for liability, all these other things. What what kind of advice do you have for me as I move forward? I know. Big did question. I, put, I know. <laughs> <big> <laughs> question.
3: I mean, I think I think in my life, there are things that I wanna be known for and I want to stand for. Like, I don't, I, it's not my job to make people like me. It's not my job to have everyone agree with me. And I think we've gotten to a point, like as I've been growing up, where, you know, people find things triggering, right? Like I think, and people might not agree with this, but we'll take the recent, the recent um, Taylor Swift anti-hero video. There's a part in the video where she's standing on a scale and the scale says fat. And people boycotted her and said, you need to take this out. Like this is fat phobia. this is fat phobic. Mm-hmm. And what they essentially did in my perspective was like invalidated her feelings of not being good enough. And they took what she experienced and said, this is this, this is this, this is Y, this is Z and you can't do this. And I think we need to get to a point where, like, there are gonna be things that are triggering. Like, I am triggered all the time, but I can't expect myself to walk out the front door every day and have the world act as I want it to, right? Like, I can't expect everyone to agree with me. I think, like, there are going to be things we disagree with, there are gonna be things that trigger us. How are we responding, right? Like, are we taking a step back and saying, why is this triggering? Take a breath. What do I need to work on? How can I reframe this? And I think when it comes to someone, you know, in a position of power saying, like no to something, it's it's for me standing up and saying, you know what, respectfully, I see your point, I see where you can be coming from, but I actually disagree and here's why. And trying to at least have an open conversation is more important to me than being like, All right, like not saying that you did this, but like mm-hmm. Or you know what, whatever, like I don't want to step on toes. And I think bringing in the female perspective too is females a lot of times are are quieter than males Mm -hmm. and it's easier to kind of be like, okay, yeah, like I I don't want to cause a problem. I don't want to cause a scene. I don't want to be labeled as dramatic when really it's frustration. And and there are so many dynamics in, in the situation that you brought up. But I think, you know, my advice would be like, it comes down to like, what do I wanna be known for and what do I wanna stand for? And is it, is sacrificing not talking about this worth it? Or am I gonna look back and say, you know what? I could have made a difference if I had said something. Mm -hmm. Um, Those are my two cents. (sighs) I think at least- I love it. Yeah, I think
1: also like saying something at least puts the idea in that person's head the next time they're like, wait, maybe we should talk about it. You know, even saying something, say they like totally deny your request, the next time they go around, maybe they might have that second thought of like, oh, let me go back and actually research like what Prim was saying because she might be right. And it forces people to actually do that research and then maybe in the future they'll talk about it.
0: You know, I like it. Ethan, do you have any thoughts?
2: I think everything that, that they both said was great. I'm a very evidence-driven mm-hmm. person. Um, and I think coming to bat with some some of the evidence showing that how asking those questions or or raising the topic and making it a little less stigmatized are just so helpful to saving lives. Um, so I, I think bringing some of that evidence as your powerhouse behind you, um, I think is is really important to just making sure everyone's more informed um, and knows the the reality that talking about it is not the risk, talking about it is how we prevent the risk. Um, so having that conversation is so necessary and, and informing people who may be misinformed, um, I think is, is part of our job as mental health advocates.
0: Yeah, Thank you for that. Next time I'm in that same position, I'm either gonna bring you guys with me <laughs> and fly you this in so you're like my, you know, I'm like, do you see these people behind me? Because if you wanna mess with me, then you can mess with them too. Um, thank you so much for, for offering that. I, that's so valuable. Really hope you enjoyed today's conversation and took something away from this discussion. Stay tuned next week for another panel discussion of the LG Transparent Conversations series talking about student-athlete mental health and well-being. I hope you've enjoyed these conversations. For other episodes of The Next Chapter, be sure to check out our homepage on iHeartRadio or wherever you get your podcasts. You can also watch a full version of these interviews on YouTube. You could just search for The Next Chapter with Prim Sripipat, and you can can also follow me on all my social media platforms at Prim underscore seripipat. The next chapter with Prim seripipat is a production of iHeartRadio. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.